Today, I'm going to be preaching from Romans chapter 15. If you guys want to turn there, I'll give you a second to turn there. Starting in verse 4 and then carrying through to verse 16. So, just give you a second. I'll be reading from the New International Version, starting in verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promise made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praise to him, all you, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, and one will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. I have written you quite boldly on some points as to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So the reason I chose to preach on this is because I think it's, it's Paul's opportunity to speak to the Roman church really gently about what's most important within a church. Um, there's lots going on in the Roman church at this time, so to give you a bit of a backstory about what we'll be getting into um, that doesn't come out in this, before this, in the chapter before this, um, there's a lot of talk about um, divisions in the church over meat and vegetables. And it sounds really simple and really silly to be fighting over basically whether you eat meat or whether you don't eat meat. But as you do a little bit more back study on it, um, the challenge for the church was that some people were eating meat that, were, that was being offered to, to false gods and idols in the temples. And they were purchasing it and then eating it for themselves. And some people in the church said, well, we really shouldn't do that. And some people were saying, well, you know, maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe it's not that important. So Paul's, what we're going to go through in the next little bit here, is, is Paul's addressing that situation in that church and, and sort of bringing them back to what is the core issue of our church, what's important about the church in Rome. So um, I'm going to go through um, what I've read, not verse by verse, but sort of breaking it down as we go. So we'll start uh, right at the top in verse 4. I'll read it again for you guys. It says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures we may have hope. And this is where Paul sort of starts with the Roman church. He starts here because he wants them to know that what's to come, what I'm about to teach you, isn't from me. It's from scriptures. This is what God has wanted for us as a church and as individuals. So don't think it's me telling you this. Don't, don't take it personal. This is what God desires for you. And, and I think this is good for us as a church too and as individuals to realize that as we, as we go forward in life, the more knowledge we have of scriptures and what God has done in the past, the more informed we are of, of his will for our lives and his will for this church. And, and the more history we, we know of God, the better understanding we know of, of how he's going to act in the future and how he chooses or wants us to act in the future too. 
So Paul starts here for the Romans just to, to really make it simple for them that what I'm about to say isn't from me, it's from God. And then we pick it up again, the next verse there, verse 5. He says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling this church who's been split by, by small issues in the grand scheme of things to, to come back and say, you know, unity is core. That's what we're, we really need to be focused on. We can't be split over these debatable issues. We need to be unified as a church. Um, God doesn't desire for this church, for us as individuals, or for the Roman church, or for our church, to be split over of things of unconsequential sort of things like this. So um, Paul's gently, at this point, you know, pulling them out and saying, this is what God's desire is for you. Um, you know, I think by unified, Paul and myself, I'm not saying, you know, we all need to do the exact same things and fall in line and, and, and never question why things are done the way they are or why, you know, God has asked us to do certain things. Like, it's not about falling in line and doing as you're told. It's about, you know, I kind of look at it as, it's kind of like a song. When we come here on Sunday mornings um, and we worship God and we're singing to God, we all are singing the same song. And it's generally accepted that we should all sort of sing the same song at the same time. If, if I was in the back corner and just started singing a song that I thought was really important, it's not very unifying. It's kind of distracting for, for you guys, I'm sure. So, But what I'm saying is, like it's like singing a song. We don't all have to be on the same key. I'm rarely on the same key as the next person to me. But, uh, but the important thing is that I'm standing next to my brother and sister, worshiping God at the same time in the same way. So, so that's for me, has always been an example or, or an illustration of, of, how, of how Paul's talking about this. So. And then we'll jump down to verse 7. I'll read it for you guys again. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. You know, as I was reading through this, I was thinking, you know, it's, it's really easy to accept um, new people when they come in the church or new friends that you meet. You kind of have like this honeymoon stage where, you know, you really can't do anything wrong. But over time, as you realize they're human and, and you realize that people aren't perfect, the challenge is to accept each other, our brothers and sisters in here. As you sit next to someone every week for years or months or on and on and on, eventually either they're going to rub you the wrong way or, or you're going to rub them the wrong way. So that's the challenge that he's calling them to do is, at church is be unified with your brothers and sisters. Um, don't, let, don't let the little things get between you and get between the big picture. So, And then in verse 8 and 9, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm, excuse me, <clears throat> to confirm the promise made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy. This is an important point for uh, for the church, and as Paul pulls it out, he's saying God or Jesus was a servant to the Jews. He's a servant to the Gentiles. Um, he offered hope to to the Jews when they were looking for hope. He offered hope to the Gentiles before they even knew that they needed hope in their lives. And as I look back on my life, you know, Jesus was my hope long before I even realized I needed hope in my life or that I was lacking hope. And, and this Jesus is the same hope that, you know, I offer to my friends and family who don't know Christ. And it's, uh, it's all we have to offer, but it is sufficient in itself. Christ is enough. So as we look back at the Roman church, we see like there's these, all these conflicts. And, and I didn't pick this verse or the, these, these verses because they epitomized our church. Um, 
I think we're doing great as a church. We're a very healthy church. And Paul goes on and shares here a little bit later on all the things within the Roman church is doing really well. This isn't a, an unhealthy and broken church like you might first get at top glance, you know, looking at it. It's a really healthy, vibrant church. And, and that's, you know, that's the part of our church that I see here too. And the reason I chose this is because I think we can learn something from the Roman church before we get to that point, if we ever do get to that point. So it's a, it's a gentle reminder for myself and for us that these little things can happen along the way. Um, so I'm going to jump ahead to verse 14. And this is sort of Paul breaking out um, for the church, you know, where they're doing well and, and where he's proud of them. And he says to them, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. I have written you quite boldly on some points as to remind you of them because of the grace God gave me. You know, he says, he says to the church, you're full of goodness. You know, I see that in our church too. Like there's people here who have hearts that break for people who are in pain and agony here globally, regionally. You know, we as a church, I think, genuinely want the best for our community, want the best for our family and everyone around us. Paul goes on to say, you know, you're competent in knowledge of God. You understand God's will. Um, and I think as, as an example of that in our church, um, we have a lot of small groups in our church that are heavily attended by members of our church. And I think up to 80 plus percent people are, are part of a small group. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we have a lot of knowledge, but it means that we have a thirst for knowledge of God. Um, people here are thirsty to know what God desires for their lives. They want to know about God. Um, and then he goes on to say that you're competent to instruct each other. He has faith that he doesn't need to be there to let them know, you know, this is what you have to do. Oh, no, you're getting out of line, or you're not doing it right, or anything like that. And I, and I feel that in our church, too. I don't think it's Jason's job or responsibility to ever, you know, to make sure that everybody's doing well. We have friends and family and leaders in this church that, um, that are competent in, in instructing us in the right way to live, to, to please God and to be in, in his will. So, um, but in, in spite of all of that, in spite of Paul pointing out how healthy they are as a church, he still says it comes back to unity. You know, it, it's the absolute basics. If, we don't, if we're not unified as a church, we can't really be calling ourselves a church. Um, it always becomes really simple with Paul, you know, uh, he's a, an amazing theologian, and you read some of his books, and it's like you, you get lost in the theology, you get lost in the depth of it, but always at some point in his books, usually at the beginning or the end, it's, it's the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. It always starts there, it always ends there for Paul. Um, and, you know, I've mulled this passage over for, for days. You know, I've really, this is one of my favorite passages, and I've mulled it over for years, really, I've been prepping for the sermon thinking, you know, what can I pull out of this that will wow everyone? You know, what's new in here that I've missed over the years? And, and the thing is, there's nothing new in here. It's simple, you know. Paul lays it out really simple. Love each other. Don't fight over the little things. Be unified so that people will see that you love each other and you'll have an opportunity to share your faith with the community around you. That's really what Paul's getting at with this. And, and that's really our ultimate goal, I think, as a church is having an opportunity to share our faith with our family. For me, it's my family, my, my close family, my extended family. Um, and it's the neighbors around me that I want to share my faith with. Those are the people that, you know, I want to be their Philip. I don't know if you know the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts. It's, that's kind of, you know, if you don't know the story, go back to Acts chapter 8 and read it. It's a story of Philip sharing his faith with an Ethiopian eunuch 
And just it's an amazing story of how one man shares something really important to him and another man takes it and applies it to his life. And it's really, really empowering to read. Um, so we are those Phillips in the world. We are the Phillips of the world. And, and if, we, uh, you know, if you go out and you share your faith, you're probably, or I haven't had many Philip moments where you share your faith and the person's like, yes, amen, baptize me, I'm done, we're good. You know, that doesn't happen in my life that often. To be honest, I don't think it's ever happened like that. But um, the reason it's in Acts is because it's a really cool story. Um, it's not the reality for most people. Um, it may be someday for some of us, but the reality probably of, of Philip's life as well as ours was that there were times where he was, you know, laughed at or shunned or... or you know, pushed off as a crazy fanatic or something like that, that's probably the reality for a lot of us. But if we just dwell on those moments and and don't take the opportunities that God puts in front of us, these divine appointments, like I like to think of them, God, you know when you get someone plopped right in front of you who says, who asks you a question, and the only way not to answer it without talking about God is to literally run the other way or to, to change the subject, those divine appointments when someone says, you know, Basically, they're saying, tell me about God. Tell me I want to know. You know, if we don't take advantage of those moments, we may never, excuse me, we may never have those Philip moments like uh, Philip had in Acts. So. But to be honest, for myself and for us as a church, it's, it doesn't really come down to, to me and how I feel about sharing my faith. Um, it has really little to nothing to do with me. I like to feel good about sharing my faith. I like to know that I've, I've, I've made an impact in someone's life. But... The important thing is that person that, that you're sharing your faith with. Um, and I'm not saying it has to be in words. It doesn't have to be that way. It can be in the way that you live in, in years and years of time. But for me, it's can you imagine so-and-so living their life without knowing God, without knowing the hope that we have? Um, that's, what, that's what I try to think of. And I don't want to stress that you need to get out there and we need to share our faith because, you know, I personally, I, I struggle with it sometimes. I work with a lot of non-Christian people, and, and I struggle with, man, if I share my faith, what are they going to think of me? You know, if, with our employees and stuff, if I'm saying, you know, you, know, you really need to, you need to know God, and will they, will they take me serious? Will they, will they think that their boss is crazy sort of thing? Or, you know, so I, I wrestle with that, but it, it doesn't really matter what I think or how it's going to affect me. It matters if they know the hope that Jesus has for them. So I don't want to beat us over the head with it. I just want to gently remind us of the importance of the task that we've been given. Last November, um, me and Jason and Dave Story were in Minneapolis for a conference um, with the denomination for the Navigate, uh, the Navigate process that we've been going through as a church. It's, I won't get into it. It's a huge story. It's, it's exciting, too. I'm really excited about it, too. But there's, you know, I was part of a personal evangelism course down there when I was there, and it, it was a really cool, cool class. I've taken a lot of classes like that before, and and there's lots of cool things that came out of it, but the thing that stuck with me was a story that uh, the teacher shared, and it's sort of stuck with me ever since. And it was about a pastor who lived just outside of Chicago, and he was a pastor of a church, and he was going to a country club, and he got to meet this guy there. His name was Stedman. And they got to be really good friends, and they started golfing together a lot and hanging out. And one day they were in, uh, in the locker room talking, and Stedman says to this pastor, he says, you know, my birthday's coming up, and my... My wife wants to have a big birthday party, and we were wondering if you and your wife wanted to join us for it. And the pastor's like, yeah, no, that'd be great. We'd love to be there. And I don't know if you, you put it together. Stedman is Oprah Winfrey's husband, or common-law husband, however it works out. I'm not sure, but 
But it was his birthday, and Oprah was throwing the party, and the pastor and his wife were invited to come and be a part of this. And, and the pastor's, you know, he's pretty excited. He's like, I'm going to get to go there and meet some pretty important people or some really famous people. So him and his wife, they get all dressed up, and they go, and they get there, and Oprah and Stedman are at the end of a long table, and there's a lot of really important, famous people there, however you want to look at it. And the pastor and his wife are put sort of a little farther down the table. And he's, you know, the pastor's like, oh, man, it would have been nice to talk to so-and-so. But, you know, I'll make the best of it. So he looks across the table, and there's a fairly elderly gentleman who's quite grumpy and curmudgeon sitting across from him, and he's, he's, he's like, oh, well, I'll, I, I'll do my job. I guess I'll, I'll do my best. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a conversation. So he starts a conversation up with this guy across the table from him and says, so what's your name and what do you do? And, and the older gentleman says, well, I'm, my name's John and, and uh, I'm in investment and I'm, I'm a businessman or whatever. And, and then the, the older gentleman says, well, what do you do? And he says, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor of a church just outside of Chicago here. And he goes, and then there's sort of silence and the older gentleman goes, a pastor? And he goes, well, yeah, yeah, I'm a pastor. And he says it a little louder and this time, a pastor? <laughs> And he goes, yeah, no, I'm a pastor. And at this point, all the conversations have kind of gone quiet and everybody's turned to them. And, and he goes, well, if you're a pastor, then you're in the business of saving souls, aren't you? And he's getting louder. And the pastor's like, well, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it that way, but, you know, we, I guess, yeah, you, uh, you know. And, well, if, what do you do? Are you in the business of saving souls? And he goes, well, we get together and we, I preach and teach and people listen and they ask questions. And we have Sunday school and we have... Uh, you know, we have, we have small groups and we do community events and potlucks and stuff like that. And he goes, you know, so, that, so that's what we do. And he goes, well, you're either saving souls or you're not. Are you doing your job, Pastor? <laughs> and at this point, I think that it was so awkward that everybody went back to their conversations. And the pastor and the older gentleman, they stop. Their, their conversation sort of dies out there. And they, they spend the rest of the evening just doing pleasantries and, and hoping, I think the pastor hoping that it won't happen again or that this topic won't come up again. And then towards the end of the night, the older gentleman comes back to the pastor and he says, um, you know, I, I, I want you to go back to your church and I want you to talk to your church and make a plan of how you're going to save souls, how you're going to share your faith with your community. You go back, you talk to them, and you make a plan. You write it down and I will help fund it however you need it funded. So he went home and he went back and he talked to his church begrudgingly and, and they all got on board and they're like, yeah, we need to, we want to, we've wanted to. We just, we just need to make a plan. So they wrote out a business plan, however you want to look at it, and they got together as a church, and they raised somewhere in the neighborhood of $100,000. And so this pastor takes this document that they've written up, and they go, he goes back to the businessman and says, here you go, this is what we've decided to do to share our faith. And the, and the, the older gentleman goes, great, now go share your faith and save some souls. And he gave him another $200,000 to put towards this initiative of theirs. And... You know, I'm not saying we need to look at the church as a business. The church is not a business. Um, this businessman looked at it as a business. We're not in a black and red sort of thing, a profit-loss organization. This is a church. It's different. But what he did for that pastor and for that church was to remind them the utter importance of what we have been called to do. You know, we're either saving souls or we're not. And I'm not saying that to be really make us feel bad if we're not saving souls. But that's our goal, isn't it? Eventually, that's our goal, is to share our faith so that people will have the hope that we have. Um, the church isn't a social group. You know, we do lots of great things. Don't get me wrong. I love potlucks. I love, 
um, music nights that we do here, but we're not a social group. We're a social movement. Um, Christ didn't have 12 disciples so they'd have 12 guys to hang out with and 12 friends that he could share a meal with. He had 12 disciples so that he could turn the world upside down. He had 12 disciples so he could give a hopeless world hope. And that's what we've been called to, too. We are here to give a hopeless world hope. And there's nothing more important in the world than that. So, thank you.